1: This is the Read to Lead Podcast, episode 463.
0: Like, why is it that everyone has access to the same content, the same TED Talks, the same podcasts, but in any org, a majority of them are trying to figure out, and some of them are thriving, and they have the same access. And that's because they consume that content as learners versus knowers.
1: Hello and welcome. I'm Jeff Brown. This is the Read to Lead podcast. It's the podcast that's dedicated to your personal and professional growth, where I believe that if you want to achieve true success in your business and in your life, then intentional and consistent reading is a must. We often visit with a successful and inspiring author to talk about their latest book and their unique insights on a variety of different topics. Today, it's an Author Times 2. We'll be sitting down with Colin Coggins and Garrett Brown. They've co-written a book called The Unsold Mindset, redefining what it means to sell. And they say the world's greatest sellers are the opposite of who you think they are. I'll be asking Colin and Garrett to share about why they say the worst fault in selling is to be disingenuous, how to deal with setbacks, and why you have to be a learner to have an unsold mindset, How to create moments of transformation, not just transactional experiences, and much, much more. Hey, if you're not yet a member of the Read to Lead community, I want to give you some extra incentive for joining. There, of course, are the weekly book summaries that arrive about every Sunday that you can take advantage of. Every once in a while, I host an Ask Me Anything inside the community. In fact, I'm doing that this coming Thursday in just a couple of days. That's Thursday, February 23rd, 2023. And the theme for this Ask Me Anything is artificial intelligence. We'll talk about AI as it relates to things like image generation, copywriting, presentations, video, and a lot more. Ways to leverage tools like chat GPT, the ethical implications of AI going forward, whether or not AI is going to steal your job, and much, much more. It's free to attend. You just need to be a member of the Read to Lead community right now. That's free. You'll get access to those book summaries right away. There are over a dozen across seven different categories currently, and you can attend this Thursday's Ask Me Anything, the AI edition. To find out more about all that, just go to jeffbrown.me. That's jeffbrown, J-E-F-F-B-R-O-W-N dot me. Colin Coggins and Garrett Brown are longtime sales leaders, practitioners, teachers, and best friends. They met at software startup Bidium, which they helped lead to an acquisition by Google. They teach the popular course. They created Sales Mindset for Entrepreneurs at the University of Southern California's Marshall School of Business. Also, investors, corporate advisors, and co-founders of Agency18, a firm that helps mission-driven companies adopt the unsold mindset. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Sought after as keynote speakers and guest lecturers, they love connecting with audiences from diverse industries, professions, and backgrounds, and showing them that it's possible to successfully sell without being someone you're not. Their new book is called The Unsold Mindset, Redefining What It Means to Sell. Well, I'm excited to have both of you here. Colin, I'll start with you. Welcome officially uh, to the Read to Lead podcast, my friend.
0: Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm excited to be here.
1: And likewise, Garrett, welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, to begin with, Colin, I'll start with you. I think I want folks to understand what is meant by the unsold in in this context. Who are specifically the unsold when you make that reference?
0: Garrett and I started this journey by admitting to each other, at some point, this realization that we came to that the greatest salespeople on the planet were the opposite of who most people thought they were. And they didn't always have sales in their title. Yeah, they weren't gregarious, they weren't extroverted, they weren't hyper-self-confident, they they didn't have the stigma attached to the role. And the further we we dug, the more we realized that they all had these common traits. And essentially they were unsold on who the world expected them to be in their role they were they were unsold on who customers and buyers wanted them to be they were unsold on who society thought they should be and we started to see that across multiple verticals you know and from chefs to lawyers to ceos to sales professionals to mothers and fathers They all thought the same way and they just gave themselves permission to be the antithesis of who people expected them to be in whatever their role was. And so eventually we just started saying they're unsold on who they're supposed to be Mm. and they're unsold on how the word sales defines them because they were all acknowledging, we sell ourselves, we sell ideas, we sell products and services every single day, mm-hmm. uh, regardless of who someone tells me a quote-unquote seller is supposed to be or look like or sound like. So they're rule breakers, and we fell in love with them instantly.
1: And I love this idea of of breaking the rules. You guys mentioned Dan Pink, his book called To Sell is Human. I think of books from like Ian Altman, Same Side Selling, and others that That speak to me as somebody who grew up thinking that sales was slimy and thinking, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not a salesperson because. That's not me. I don't want to be that. I am a former new and used car salesman. So <laughs> I got around that eventually. But uh, it was very much, a, a, as, as the title says, very much a mindset shift that was required uh, for me. Ogilvy said, what was it? The worst fault in selling is to, is to be boring. You guys say it's to be disingenuous, right? We don't like it when others are fake with us. But we yep. also don't like being the fake, right, Garrett?
2: That's exactly it. When anybody finds themselves in a situation, whether it's, as someone said, whether you're selling your spin in a job interview, whether you're selling yeah to your boss or to your spouse on where to go to dinner or whether you're selling a product or service. Sometimes when we get in these selling situations, we think that we have to act a way, and that we have to be what a good salesperson is. And that's just not the case. As, as Colin and I dug into all of these great sell, and I'm going to call them sellers and not salespeople, because like Colin said, they do not, all, most of them don't even have sales in their title. Right. Um, but what they all have in common is that they just give themselves permission to not do what's expected of them and to be authentic and to be, you know, if if they don't think something's funny, they're not going to laugh at it. They're not going to give that fake laugh that, that you imagine a salesperson is going to give. And, you know, if they don't think that their product's going to help somebody, they're not going to go and try to push it and, and quote unquote, sell the unsellable. They're going to look for people who they can help. They're going to go try to try to solve those challenges for them. And they're going to do it in a way that works for them. We always tell our students, And the companies that we work with and the audiences that we speak in front of that there is no one right way to do things. And all of these great sellers have figured that out. They realize that and they do things in a way that's comfortable for them. And as we found in our research and in the science, customers pick up on that.
0: Mm. I just want Jeff, I wanted to add just additional context because what Garrett's saying is so important. If you think about what makes these the unsold who they are, you can't act authentic. So, like what Garrett's talking about is like this hyper authenticity, right? This vulnerability. Someone in a company will look at the top seller and go, Oh, I'm going to pretend to be them. I'm just going to do everything they do. And then I will be successful too. That's where, like, you know, people decide to start mirroring people. Mm. Like, you'll see this really great salesperson lean in. And like, naturally, because they're engaged, they will mirror. Not, not on purpose, right? But because they're actually that engaged. And then you'll find people in the org that'll go, oh, I'm going to start mirroring. You see, the thing is, is is Garrett could tell you for an hour just about the science behind the schema schema and why we sense that inauthenticity immediately. But I think the, the core theme is that you can't act authentic and therefore you can't portray or try to be this character of someone that is good because they're just the best version of themselves. You can't be the best version of someone else's self because you're not being the realest version of
1: yourself. That is, that is so true. In, in a cohort that I lead centered around the art of note-taking, creating with the knowledge that you gain, putting what you learn into action, I, I talk about this concept of selective ignorance. In essence, it's about you know, more signal, less noise. Similarly, you guys talk about mm. intentional ignorance in the book, what does that mean in in the context of selling, and and what should we consider when deciding what to be intentionally ignorant about?
2: Yeah, this this is a great one because it, and it goes right back to what I was just talking about about thinking that you have to act and and be a certain way when you're selling. So the image of a great salesperson that we all have in our heads is this person who has all the answers. And when a customer has an objection, they can go out and they can counter that objection or they know everything that there is to know about their product. And as we started having these conversations with all of these great sellers and all of these different industries, we realized that not only did they not know everything about their product and not have all of the information and not have all of the answers, they loved not having all of the answers for a whole bunch of reasons. And and I'll give one and then I'll defer to Colin because I can see him here chomping at the bit to, to get further into it. But for one thing, you know, if you're not passionate about something, you do not speak the same way that you do about something that you are really excited about. Mm-hmm. So if I'm selling a product and it's really technical and I'm just not that interested in the technical details, when I'm trying to talk to a customer about those technical details, I'm going to sound different. I'm not going to be as excited and they're going to pick up on that. So what, I'm, what great sellers do, what they love to do is say, I don't know about that, but I do know somebody smarter than me who does. Let's go figure it out together. And so you're accomplishing a couple of things there. One is what I just said, which is that you now are are not trying to pretend to be excited about something. Again, authenticity uh, mm-hmm. that you're not excited about. But now you've also put yourself on the same side of the table, on the same team as your customer. So instead of it being you against the you you on one side of the table tr- trying to feed information and give answers to your customer, now all of a sudden you and your customer are on the same side of the table, going and figuring out what that information is that you need together. Um, so that that becomes really really important, and that's that's another theme that we talk about often.
0: They're not do we call it intentional ignorance because they are being intentional about the parts of their work that they are not authentically passionate or excited about. Like they're actually like they're actually creating an infrastructure to mitigate inauthenticity. You know, like we we talk to a great ad tech salesperson like just top to run of the mill, just like if you met her, you would think this is one of the greatest salespeople in the industry. She's just got it. When you talk to her, you're the only person in the room. She hates tech, (laughs) does not excite her. (laughs) Like She's so good at her job and does not love talking about tech. And her three favorite words are, I don't know not because like she's using it as some tactic but because she doesn't want to show up and pretend to like be excited about something if she knows that she has the support. So what Garrett is saying is so important because the minute that she says I don't know but I will go and find out for you, she's realized early on in her career that her resourcefulness to go and fight for the customer and to go and find the answers mm-hmm. were getting more credit than her having all the answers. It was this um this, this understanding that I think a lot of us know in hindsight, no one appreciates a know-it-all. Like no, no one actually wants to have this person that has all the answers because you're stripping agency away from people. Mm. Like people don't feel like they're part of the decision. They don't feel like they're part of the process. And that's both internal and external. So you know, we, not to get too foo-foo because Garrett, if he was the host, he would put me on mute. So I'll keep it short. <laughs> what, what, what people... <laughs> What people are good at and what people love Mm. are not always the same thing. And so, you know, if you can, if you can get into a situation where, you know, you can do what you're good at and look for the things that you love doing in your work, that eventually you'll start to ignore the parts that are doing the opposite for you, right? You're either giving energy or taking it away. I think that these sellers just have given themselves permission over time to show up as the best version of themselves, which means that they have to ignore certain parts of their job that will Sort of not let that happen.
2: And to be really clear on this, they're not doing it as a tactic. They're not doing it because they think they're going to sell somebody better by by being that way. They're doing it because it allows them to show up as the most authentic version of themselves.
1: To that, I remember early in my management career being very much the kind of, of person who felt like I needed to have all the answers because... That was essentially, up to that point, what had been modeled for me. That's all that I knew. I mm-hmm. thought that's what a leader uh, was. It took a while for me to learn that that's, that's not the case. Um, talk a bit about how people with an unsold mindset, guys, view and, and deal with, with setbacks and why you have to be a learner, and I love this, to have an unsold mindset. I'm all about professional and personal development. So, so let's talk about that a bit. Colin, let's start with you.
0: Yeah. Take
1: your podcast, for example.
0: You have thousands and thousands of people that listen to you and, and these really smart, successful people every week. Everyone has access to this podcast. Maybe 20% are going to take that and they are going to thrive because of the information that they've consumed. And the other 80% are trying to figure it out. Just like in any organization, you know, on average, right, 20% of the room is generating 80% of the revenue. But why is that? Like, why is it that everyone has access to the same content, the same TED Talks, the same podcasts, but in any org, a majority of them are trying to figure out and some of them are thriving and they have the same access. And that's because they consume that content as learners versus knowers. And that's a really, really important thing because we've found that the greatest leaders on the planet are the greatest sellers on the planet. Like, and they don't want to be the smartest person in the room. Like th- this whole concept of intentional ignorance that we just talked about, like General Stanley McChrystal has this great quote and you know, we we interviewed him for an hour and had a blast, but you would expect like a general in the army. I mean, how many, how many forces were underneath him, Garrett? Tens
2: of thousands, I think 48 countries um, and tens of thousands, maybe even more soldiers from those countries. And he's sort of the the figurehead and the leader of all of those forces.
0: Yeah, this guy, and he's, he talks about how people expect what they expect out of a general, and he walks into the room and purposefully like wants to be the learner in the room, doesn't want to be the knower in the room, wants people to feel like they are part of the decision making process so you know being a learner and being a knower is i think one of the most important um revelations that we found is that no one that we talked to wanted to be the smartest person in the room. We found that introverts were some of the best salespeople in the room at all times because people were giving them permission to speak. They were giving them permission to sell because most of the time they were asking questions. And if you're a real learner and you want to know things that other people don't, that's a key difference. Like It sounds really trivial, but Learners ask questions they actually want to know the answers to. Everyone else asks questions they think they're supposed to ask. We all know what a leading question sounds like. We all know what a question sounds like when you're trying to act smart. But, like, sit in front of someone that just generally wants to know something most people don't. Like, there's a whole conversation there, there's a vibe there that, that it can't be replicated.
2: There's something else when you're a learner, especially as a traditional salesperson, traditional salespeople know, and you know, Jeff, if you were selling cars, like you're getting told no way more than you're getting told yes. Selling is a tough, tough profession, whether it's in your job title or not. And and so how do you... Being in a profession where you're getting told no constantly. How do you turn that experience into not being where you're waiting for this sort of delayed gratification? I'm waiting for the next sale before I can actually be happy and before I can actually feel good about what I'm doing all day long. And by being a learner, all of these great sellers that we, that we researched and that we spoke to, they were able to turn selling into a game of prolonged gratification because they weren't waiting for the sale, they would actually celebrate the lessons that they were learning along the way. So yeah, I got hung up on, or yeah, that deal that I thought 100% was going to get across the finish line and make my quarter, it got pushed to next month, or or it just fell through completely. You know, How do you find any sort of positivity in that? And and these people were really great at doing that because they would find the lessons and they would grow and they would know, okay, I made that mistake this time. I'm not going to make it next time and Colin and I talk a lot people especially our, our students to laugh at us because we're constantly saying celebrate the process and when we talk about celebrate the process that's exactly what we mean celebrate the wins of course you got to you know you got to step back and celebrate when you close that deal but if you can also celebrate that you did get hung up on but now you're not going to make that mistake again that changes the game now we're in we now we're in a game of prolonged gratification
0: yeah, that's the tool belt. you as a car salesman, you get it. Right? We wish you a thousand no's your first thousand days. <laughs> if you're getting no's, you are doing your job. If you get the same no twice, you are not doing your job. Mm. The best thing for everybody is to get a no, but immediately after you got to ask the most important question, which is what could I have done differently? And that's like th- those conversations you have with yourself are more important than the conversations you have with other people. You know, you you ask that question, you get the right answers. You turn around and you pray that someone gives you that same objection the next day right? because you already got that tool belt.
1: And some of what you're talking about, correct me if I'm wrong, kind of bleeds over into another chapter where you talk about being pathologically optimistic. Uh, what What might be the advantages to that level of optimism that may not be immediately apparent, let's say?
0: The the problem with pathological optimism, why Garrett and I laugh so hard about it is because it the, the origination of that term from my wife was not a compliment. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> but you know, like, like if you if you think about all the conversations that we're having right now, you know, the underlying theme here is we're talking about this uh this talent, this muscle to look for the good and find it. Just like some people are really good at looking for the bad and finding it. You know, the brain is so malleable and that's what's so interesting is that it, it will find whatever it is that it's looking for. From an emotional perspective, you know the thing about learned optimism is that it's very like easy to understand. If for some reason you think that you will succeed, you will then continue to try because you assume at some point you will. And then eventually it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You prove yourself right. And so when you when you see these salespeople, resilience isn't something that they're necessarily trained on, right? Self-awareness isn't something that they're necessarily trained on. But over time, what you see is that the people that think that at some point what they're doing is going to be fruitful, it actually yields those benefits. You know, like Jordan Gretzky, you hear these quotes, it's like you, you miss, you know, all the shots that you don't take. And and by the way, we wanted these successful people to tell us that they were realists, that they were pessimists. But all of them were like, especially the most logical data driven ones were like, I don't know how you could survive in this game if you didn't think that what you were doing meant something. Mm. You know, so from an emotional perspective, there is just a lot that goes into The, which I think we'll get to later, which is the purpose that is attached to what you're doing, which gives yourself permission to be optimistic because you're not viewing setbacks as finish lines, right? You're viewing them as mile markers on a really long journey when you're naive enough to expect, you know, good things at the end of the rainbow. Garrett, tie me down with some, with some more logical justification. No,
2: I mean, that's, that's, (laughs) that's as good as it gets right there. The only thing I'll say is that. Toxic positivity gets a lot of press these days. And for good reason, there's a lot you, you don't just, you know, somebody has a really bad day. You can't just go up to them and say, smile, it's going to be better. And that's not what Colin and I are talking about here. We're talking about, as he, he said, flexing those muscles and conditioning yourself to to look for the good in things when um when maybe it doesn't seem like it's there. And and you know, we talk about mindset a lot, and there's a reason that we talk about that. You can you can learn all the x's and o's and blocking and tackling of selling, but if we genuinely believe and and we think we've proven that if your mindset isn't right, you're still going to be in that 80 percent that Colin was talking about, where you're just trying to figure it out. And so these people, they they optimistically believe that every person that they're going to try to quote unquote sell something to is going to be a customer because they know that when they speak to a customer. It's going to be very different than if they speak to the 57th name on a list of 100 names that they need to talk to that day. Mm. You're not going to be mad at somebody who puts food on your table and and helps pay your kids tuition and you know, you you're going to you're going to love that person. You're going to you're going to have a wonderful time talking to that person. And so they just they get into that mindset. Now there's certainly bad days and there's certainly things that that happen and they're challenging and that's the fun of life, but in general they default back to that sort of optimism and and looking for the good in every situation. Mm
0: and just and fast forward from there just just to really prove this point of learned optimism at some point you understand that it works you understand that you, that you will be successful if you if you continue down your path mm-hmm. that sort of reaffirmation like after a bunch of times you start looking for obstacles But you turn into the person that's searching for friction, that's searching for problems to solve, that understands finally you can't have a breakthrough if there's like not something to break through. (laughs) So, you know, you go from like in the beginning of your career, you're like avoiding objections and like, you know, you're avoiding friction to like when you become a hitter and you realize like you've never done anything impactful or meaningful in your entire life if you didn't solve that problem that someone had or that you had. And now you're the person that's searching for problems to solve. And then learned optimism really becomes this interesting thing I think Martin Seligman did just a fascinating job of articulating why it is that it works. Because it's not fufu. It's not law of attraction. Not to say that we don't believe in law of attraction, but that's not what this conversation is about. (laughs) This is about like, (laughs) you will find goals in the most mundane of places if you're looking but you have to look for it. Mm, I
1: love that. Both Colin and Garrett say that uh, we need to embrace love uh, in this process. I'm putting that in air quotes. And I particularly enjoyed the uh, cable tech support story. And yes, uh, that's an open loop for you that buying the book will help you close. So there you go. Put (laughs) put that away for future use. Guys, what does does falling in love look like in, in this context? we love talking about love. <laughs>
0: Did you really just say that?
1: <laughs> yeah. I, as I
2: was saying it, I kind of thought, eh, maybe we'll edit that out, but <laughs> maybe i will right? you, I'll tell you what I mean by it. And then we can decide if we want to edit it out. But people have a real reaction to the word love. Like there, there is a stigma one way or the other around the word love. And when we talk about it in the context of business and growth, the first instinct that people have is, oh, this is cheesy. I don't, I don't want to hear about this. This. What are these guys talking about? But when we talk about love in, in our book and in, in our conversations with audiences that we speak in front of, um, we are actually talking about real love because we know that and it, and it ties very much back to what we were just talking about before about not being mad at somebody who's going to buy from you you act differently when you are in love with someone or, or at least in love with the idea of someone. Mm. And so we always coach salespeople um, and sales teams to look for ways to love the person that they're about to speak to or interact with because we know that they're going to act differently. When when a person that you genuinely care about or that you're genuinely interested in is um, says something, you're going to listen better. You're going to laugh Maybe at things that other people don't find are funny, but you're going to find them funny because of the way that you feel about them. And so all of these great sellers and and even in in the interviews, as we interviewed some, some of these amazing people for the book, you know, we would we would we recorded these during covid. And so we had these recordings and sometimes we would just literally be like, we loved that person. That was amazing. Why was that? What was it about them? And, as we would go back and and um watch their interviews, we could tell is because they had in a way, fallen in love with us when they knew things that we were up to and they were asking us questions about our work. Mm. Um and vice versa. we had fallen in love with them. Um, and so we would have these amazing conversations. And then we realized as we watched tapes of people selling, that it was the same kind of thing, like the questions they were asking, the way that they were feeling. so um it's it's really a kind of a mindset concept. And we love talking about it also because, as people cringe when we start to talk about it, once we get into the details, and I'll, I'll defer to Colin on some of the some of the nuts and bolts, but once we get into it and they realize, oh, yeah, you know what? That is what I do that makes me good. Or, oh, I should probably do that because it does make a lot of sense.
0: I think that the inflection point in every course when we bring up love is when they realize that we're talking about the true definition of the word love they're hoping we're not talking about. <laughs> like Like right, we're saying, we dare you. We dare you to fall in love, like actually try to fall, like in real love with someone. Like you can't do that. But we, so in this exercise, like in our class, we'll say we'll give you a hint. You got, you got three minutes to fall in love with your partner right now. You don't know them. You know this is like the data scientist freshman and the senior mm. basketball player that's about to go to the league. And then we're like, you got to fall in love three minutes. And they're like, oh my god, what class is this? This is definitely not a sales class. And I don't know what this is going to do to my mindset. And and you watch them and and they don't know what to do, so we give them this one clue. We go, focus on what questions you would have to ask if you actually thought you could fall in love. Like, What answer would you need to hear to be like, oh, okay, I love this person? Mm. It's just such an amazing experience to watch these human beings genuinely fall in love with each other based off of these questions that they ask. And at the end of it, all of them say the F word. It's fate. It's fate I'm talking to Josh because Josh also loves traveling and I love traveling. It's fate I'm talking to Maria. I love that she switched majors freshman year. I switched majors sophomore year. It's like, hey, hey, everyone, can we just pause for a second? We didn't ask you to ask questions based on what was important to you. We asked you to ask questions that would make you fall in love. And it was this, you know, everyone has this epiphany, like, oh my gosh, we see ourselves in the people that we love. If we look for ourselves in these people, if you you want to know what like a great salesperson looks like, it looks like someone that's genuinely enamored with the person they're talking to. I make fun of Garrett on every stage. I need to get his <laughs> wife's permission to do this eventually because I don't know how many people are going to listen to this podcast. But like I tell people, <laughs> I, I tell people that the best version of Garrett Brown is like the 14-year-old version of him when he had a crush on someone mm. because. Like Garrett said it, right? Like Garrett's like, you know, like you'll laugh at jokes that other people won't like won't find funny. But that he's not authentic, he's authentically laughing because he thinks that what she is saying is so funny. He's enamored, he's looking for the good. You find a conversation with someone. I remember when I was like, you know, a a new sales manager and I was engaged. This is in the book. I would tell people, I'd I'd be like, Hey, I should have showed up to this meeting earlier. I'm really sorry. My fiance is taking wedding planning really seriously and has access to my calendar. (laughs) And so today's topics were, you know, whatever it was, something as trivial as like tulips versus, you know, roses. And like I'd sit down and i'd apologize and i'd lead with being honest and you could you could see this like glaze in their eyes like they immediately started looking for the good in me just because i was telling them like what what just happened i gave myself permission to be that vulnerable and the responses were always in two camps one camp was like colin don't worry about it it's going to get a lot easier on your second marriage <laughs> it happened a lot <laughs> or they'd say, Colin, don't worry. You know, I've been married for X amount of years. Happy wife, happy life. But I fell in love with them the minute that they said that. But they were already falling in love with me, not because I was intentionally like trying to be some love magnet, but just because that's a deal that I already got. If, I, if I'm hearing your wedding history in the first 10 seconds, like the only reason I'm not getting that deal is because I talked you out of it. Like that's a real vibe. So, anyways, I, I'll stop talking about um, love, but we could talk about it for a very long
1: time. (laughs) That reminds me of the story you tell in the book of the two people, I don't remember their names, coming together for that Zoom meeting in the midst of COVID. And the one guy just starting off with, you know, I'm not even sure we should be even conducting business and having this meeting, mm-hmm. you know, what we're going through. And that that just opened up a conversation of the two of them just truly, truly connecting in a way that they wouldn't have otherwise. And this kind of leads to my next question, or, or maybe, maybe there's some overlap here. When you talk about creating moments of, of transformation versus just transactional experiences. Another
2: huge Mindset concept that we saw as a a running theme in all of our research and conversations. So many sellers, especially young ones, but across the board, you know, they they think very transactionally about selling. They think, okay, I, you know, I'm, I'm coming here, I'm going to. Have a conversation. I'm going to teach them about my product and then they're going to give me money and then I'm going to move on to the next one. And it's very, very transactional. They even, um, you know, as in sales trainings, they talk about the, the value equation where you're adding, you have to add more value than they're giving you. And it's, it just becomes a math problem. And every single great seller that we talked to all of the unsold they were thinking transformationally not transactionally uh, a great example of that we talked to chef Roy choi who um for those who don't know he was a he's a, a celebrity chef now with television programs but he's best known for basically kicking off the food truck revolution um we think about we think food trucks are everywhere now but back uh, you know maybe 15 20 years ago that was not a thing and he had this idea to bring high-end street food to uh, around the city in trucks. This idea was was in itself was sort of transformational, but he wasn't thinking about, okay, I'm going to start this truck and I'm going to go get customers and I'm going to sell them food. He was actually trying to transform an industry Mm. and, and change the way that people dine. So he wasn't just selling customers on, you don't have to go to a brick and mortar restaurant, follow me on Twitter, and then come out to the street where you know that I am so that you can buy a taco. He was, he was selling it to investors. Hey, everybody, invest in this because it's going to work, even though it's not their traditional business model. And he was even selling it to competitive chefs because he knew that if he could get other trucks on the street with different types of cuisines, it could actually change that industry. So that, that's a really big example of like someone thinking transformationally about an industry. But even the, the um, more traditional sellers that we talked to, they would think, how can I transform my customer's life or their business how can i make this experience something that's different than just i give you information and a product and you give me money back
0: adding value is completely different than being valuable you see it all the time right if you want to add value you have a job and you get paid for that and you're supposed to but like being valuable is making everyone around you better like that's the that's a key difference we interviewed jeff aroff you know he was he is a an old head of creative at Warner Brothers and SVP and head of Virgin Records. I mean, he was amazing. But what we were fascinated by was that he started Rock the Vote. He's, he sold an entire MTV generation on being unplugged. And then he went and sold the entire generation on being plugged back in. And then he had to sell all of the record companies on donating money. And by the way, they didn't all have the same political views into like one single repository. The whole thing is just so interesting because none of these people that we're talking to look at it this way. They don't go, I'm gonna be, I'm valuable. I'm not going to add. I'm being valuable. They go to where they authentically are the most interested in being, right? They want to change the landscape. They don't just want to change via transaction. So, being valuable is is something that we started started looking for in people.
1: When you guys ask people to name like the top characteristics of a great uh, salesperson, as I recall, creativity like this wasn't on the list. (laughs) Why, Why do you think that is, and what are some special ways you've seen creativity utilized? In the sales process i know we got our favorite
0: we we, we have a collection of these okay you know, from every from every consulting gig to, to every team we ever worked with to all of mm-hmm. our students i mean you know listen the, the pizza bet is in the book and that's a really interesting one but i just want to before we talk about the pizza bet remember what garrett said which is these people aren't using tactics they have given themselves permission to think differently and the left side of the equal sign like allows whatever's coming out on the right side of the equal sign to think and and look like it's fascinating and amazing but really mm. it was the thought process behind hey this person is not responding to my email so i'm going to make it worth their while because i'm aware socially i'm aware that i am not the center of their universe right so like what do i do and a great creative email was you know, subject line wager or something like that. And it was basically like, look, I know you're busy. You're also in San Francisco, you know, the whatever the Rams are playing the uh, the 49ers this weekend. If the Niners win, I will send a large pizza of your choice to the office and I'll never reach out to you again. But, you know, if the Rams win, then you take my call. It'll only be 20 minutes. And if you never want to talk again, I promise I will never reach out to you again. And we had like a, you know, Garrett and I had this like pizza bet, you know, bank accounts we wanted everyone to know that like pizza pizza was going to be free. You could do it. And no one wanted it. Like everyone would respond so kindly. They'd be like, "I love this approach. Thank you for being patient with me. I've just been busy. You don't have to send the pizza." Talk to my assistant. Like they, the creativity was appreciated more than being a good salesperson, right? Like when we say that the greatest salespeople are the opposite of who you think they are, you don't think about creativity when you think about a great salesperson, but that is the disconnect between who we think customers want us to be and who we actually are. We want you to be creative. We want to be wowed. We Mm -hmm. want to feel like you actually care about us. I'll stop there because that's a tangent face that Garrett's making right now.
2: (laughs) Not a tangent face. Um, It's actually, I was trying to think of, you know, where where we can add to this. And I think that, that, like you said, Jeff, when, when we think about the traits of a salesperson, we don't think about creativity, but I think it ties back to the authenticity that we started talking about in this conversation. Because mm-hmm. we all have creative pursuits that we do one way or the other. Nobody is completely non-creative, right? It, but we might not always bring it to work. And all of these people were figuring out how to incorporate it into their day. And not only does that work for making them come across differently to their customers, but it also just makes selling more fun. Like they're not burning out as quickly because they're able to incorporate their authentic interests and and external pursuits into what they're doing all day long.
0: I think that goes back Garrett to what we were talking about that like what you're good at and what you love doing aren't always the same thing. But if you can start to look for pockets that you love in areas where you're good at, a lot of times what that ends up looking like is creativity. That's the magic.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. We talked earlier about Uh, intentionality with regard to ignorance, what's your advice for applying intentionality or intentional thinking to to goal setting?
0: Oh, I'll I'll talk about a story about a psychic and then I'll pass it to Garrett. Um, (laughs) My best friend, Kevin, believes in psychics. Mm -hmm. And he was on the Venice Beach Boardwalk. This is in the book, so I'll I'll cut to the chase. A psychic said, hey, I know you're not going to believe me that I can read your fortune, so I'll do it for free. And if I'm right, come back and pay me for the next one. If I'm wrong, then you don't lose anything. Kevin was like, great. What's my fortune? And the psychic was like, three great things are going to happen to you today. Yeah. Kevin runs off, calls me, tells me this. He's so excited. An hour later, he calls me. Dog, I'm at Chipotle. You'll never guess what happened. <laughs> right? And it was like someone gave him like, you know, someone forgot to charge him for the extra guac. You know, and then like two hours later, like, you know, he sees a parking attendant coming and he just beat her by like two minutes. And he calls me and he's like, I didn't get a ticket. Like, it's all happening. You know, and the third thing was just a so trivial. And I called him, you know, after, after really thinking about it, because it wasn't that he was wrong. Like three great things did happen to him. And you know, I said, hey, like, let me ask you something. What would happen if the psychic told you that three bad things were going to happen to you today? Mm. And, you know, you see this like face that you wish you could just freeze frame forever. <laughs> And he's like, I guess I would, I would be prepared for them. I would look for them, you know? And, and it's, it's, that's what goal setting, goal setting is. Is amazing because if your goal is to, you know, fall in love, you'll see that goal in line at McDonald's when you're choosing your <laughs> when you're choosing, you know, the Big Mac or whatever, the grilled chicken sandwich, because your goal is to fall in love. You read it this morning, the person that you want to fall in love with values health, and then you make a decision. So, like goals are like really important because you'll find them in the most mundane of places, like I said earlier. Mm. The challenge with goals is that no one talks about the ugly side of goals. Like, what happens when you don't hit your goals? What happens when your back's against the wall, you have to put food on the table and you're not hitting your goal? We you know, we don't wake up and, and decide we want to be smarmy, manipulative, yucky salespeople. That's not what happens. We wake up one day and our backs are against the wall and we have no choice and we don't give ourselves that choice. And that's because they're viewing goals as finish lines. You know, Either you make them or you don't make them. So we found, and I'll, I'll, I'll let Garrett tell you what, what we found, but I I'll, I'll just end by saying, we wanted to understand the goal setting for all of these successful people, but they all figured a way to have a different conversation with us that had nothing to do with goals.
2: Yeah. I'm guessing that everybody listening to this podcast has goals just by nature of, of the type of listener that you probably have. Mm. And salespeople definitely have goals. And usually they they don't even set some of those goals, right? They've got quotas that are handed to them right. um, by management or or by the company. And so everybody's got these goals. Why are some people hitting them and some people not? And so the discovery that Colin is sort of um, foreshadowing in his, in his story is that these amazing sellers, they didn't just set goals. They tied those goals to their purpose. They had actually taken the time to think through, define, and articulate a purpose, a reason why they are doing the things that they are doing. And so instead of just setting a goal and maybe I hit it and maybe I don't. And by the way, if I'm close to not hitting it, something like Colin said is going to happen where I'm going to start to turn into the seller that I don't want to be, that my customer doesn't want me to be. Instead, if I'm looking ahead to what is this goal driving me towards, what is the purpose that it's driving me towards, then all of a sudden the goal becomes a mile marker and it's not a finish line and you don't have that desperate act that, that some people start to take when they're not going to hit that goal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we talk a lot in the book and a lot, um, with, with the audiences that we speak in front of about purpose and about making sure that you're articulating your purpose. We would see it in the interviews that we had. We, the, we, uh, we were talking to the CMO of Atlassian, huge tech company, global tech company. And, you know, we asked him some questions and within, I think it was 37 seconds into the interview, he is beautifully articulating this purpose that he had, that he had clearly spent some time thinking about and talking about why it is so important to him in his career, how it defines his decisions, the problems that he works on, the people that he works with. And we hadn't asked him what his purpose was. He just led with that. And he wasn't the only one that, that we talked to that did that. And so um, the the lesson out of this for, for people listening is you probably have your goals, define your purpose, and then tie those goals to that purpose. So if your goal is to you know make X amount of dollars this quarter, add the, the second half of that sentence, which is because or so I can, and really have these purpose-driven goals as opposed to just goals out there in the open by
1: themselves. Yeah. Let the purpose be the lens through which you filter them. Right. Exactly.
0: If you need a reason to believe in that, think about the last time you hit a goal and your response was, oh, I thought this was going to feel different. (laughs) You know, like the last time you hit a goal and you were like, wait, that's it. Yeah. So, you know, tying it to purpose, they're just figuring out a way to not have this ephemeral reaction, you know, because the purpose lasts a lot longer than the goal.
1: I've got one other question I want to ask you guys that isn't directly related to your book. But before I do that, I want to give both of you a chance to chime in with anything else from your book you want to make sure that we we walk away with. Garrett, I'll, I'll start with you and then go to Colin.
2: It was a well well-led interview, Jeff. I don't think I have anything else other than I'll go back to, to the concept that I mentioned earlier and remind people to celebrate the process. I joke that we say it a lot with our students. And now we're saying it a lot here in this podcast, (laughs) but like Colin said, you're going to hit goals. And sometimes you're going to be like, that was it, right? You'll celebrate for a minute. And then guess what? You're on to the next one. Make sure that you're celebrating the process, celebrating the wins and the losses and the ups and the downs, because that's what makes it fun. And and that's, what's going to give you that game of prolonged gratification that we were talking about
0: uh i'll stay on that theme the question that i would love your listeners to ask themselves is if you knew this was the best part of your movie like what would you do differently yeah like we we talked earlier about these people that once they get to a certain level of success like they 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 realize that they don't get to the best part of the movie unless they go through the lows and the highs right the middle of the movie the hard part like we don't go to the movie to see the ending and so it's something to think about cuz a lot of us especially like in in business like we hit some really hard times. Like burnout is real, you know, the economy is real, uh, the you know, un, you know not knowing what's going to happen is real. And in those moments of not knowing and being scared um and ha- and doing things out of your comfort zone. Mm. Those are those are usually like the moments that you look back on and those were the key moments those are the ones that you remember the most those are the highlights Th- that's what we would pay to go see if we were watching a movie so and listen if every successful person we've interviewed is telling us that you know like ryan holiday said if the obstacle is the way you know if if the best part of the movie is where you're at right now don't waste it being
1: someone you're not mm. sticking with you colin uh, i want to know the books that have impacted you I'll go to Garrett in a moment with the same question. Career, your life. Wow.
0: When I was 21 in my first sales job, someone gave me the Tony Robbins book, Awaken the Giant Within. Mm. And I tried reading it several times and I couldn't. I just kept hearing his voice and at that time his voice was so cheesy to me and i kept seeing his infomercials and it was just so not aligned with who i was right but i took the i took the cover off this is a true story i took the cover off of the book and i eventually got through it and it changed my life wow. like it star- it stopped sounding like tony robbins i started i started reading other personal development books and i was like oh they're all saying the same thing they're mm-hmm. all aggregating like the same information all of these successful people are doing the same thing Mm-hmm. um and so uh, everything from the the way that the the power of words you know choosing to say challenge versus problems to realizing that the most important conversations that i have are with myself and not with other people you know like th- these these have changed my business world i think it takes what it takes by trevor moad rest in peace is a great book mm-hmm. um I love the happiness advantage. Awaken the Giant was the first real book that I've uh, I ever really read, cover to cover. Just read Jan Wenner's uh Like a Rolling Stone autobiography, which is amazing. Jay-Z's Decoded probably has changed my life. I read that once a year. Hmm. We we have so many. I think the, the the one that Garrett and I talk a lot about is um the the extraordinary mind because there's so much debate in our class about it. Like some people love it and some people don't. And when you when you get into like what it is that they love, what they love about it is the content. What a lot of people don't like about it is the way that that content was maybe delivered throughout the book. Mm. But you know, we we say if you want to have some impactful questions, if you want to ask yourself really good questions, read that book. So those are just a couple. That is a tangent face, Garrett. I know it. (laughs) Tell me it's not.
1: What about you, Garrett? What books uh, come to mind when I ask that question?
2: Well, I think Colin just listed Every book that's ever been published. So I don't know if there's anything <laughs> left for me to. <laughs> we read, as you can tell, we read a lot of books. Both of us do, and I think that's one of the things that many years ago brought us together is that we had we had read so many of the same books and we had so many of the same curiosities. So, but before I answer your question semi-directly, I'll I, a couple pieces of advice about reading that we give our students a lot, mm. and one of those things that we say is is read lots of different kinds of books. It's easy to get sucked into into the self-help genre or, or one specific, you know, pop psychology, it's really easy to get, go down those rabbit holes and just read that. But Colin and I, as you could tell by his, his uh, long list there, we read everything. We read biographies and we read classics and we read like uh, Eastern religious texts and crazy things like that from time to time. So that's one piece of advice that we always share is, is make sure that you're jumping genres. And the other thing is uh, that first I realized this, A lot of people think they can only read one book at a time and they really focus on that. But we recommend reading a bunch of books at a time because you watch a bunch of TV shows at at a time, you know, the episodic TV and and you have no problem remembering it. Sometimes it's nice to jump back and forth between things. And when you're inspired to read something, go read that. And when when something else pulls you in, go read that. So those are my two, just, you didn't ask for advice, but I just felt like sharing that because while Colin was listing every book he's
0: ever read, I I realized I needed to say something. Welcome (laughs) to my world. He's offering advice you didn't ask. For. Now you know what it feels like to be his partner.
2: <laughs> but my answer to your question, it, it's, it's a handful of books, but anything by Adam Grant. Um, I absolutely love. He was absolutely an inspiration for for how we wanted this book to feel and sound, just the way that he incorporates stories and experience and research. And all of his books are are very interesting and unique. Um, And we were lucky enough to reach out to him and ask him to read our book. And he he gave us an endorsement, which was one of the highlights of this process for us. Mm. Um, So anything from Adam Grant, I think, is something that I recommend. And I've gifted many of his books to many people before.
1: I love the advice too, Garrett. I appreciate you sharing that. I, I used to be that that sort of that kind of mentality of, well, you know, I got to finish this before I go to the next one, but I'm very much now the kind of person who will have several books going at the same time and see no problem in that anymore like I, like I used to. Well, their book again is called The Unsold Mindset, Redefining What It Means to Sell. Colin Coggins and Garrett Brown, who is not related to me so far as I know. Uh, guys, thank you so much uh, for being here. Really enjoyed having both of you.
0: We appreciate it. We had a blast, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff.
1: Hope you enjoyed today's conversation. For links to the resources that we talked about, you can go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash 463 for episode 463. That includes a link to every book Adam Grant has ever written and also every other book ever published, apparently. Again, it's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 463. If you're hearing this before 3 p.m. Eastern Time on Thursday, February 23rd, 2023, I hope you'll join me for my next Ask Me Anything AI edition inside the Read to Lead community. To join the community for free, attend Thursday's Ask Me Anything and get a free business book summary every single week go to jeffbrown.me. One more time, that's Jeff Brown. that's my name, dot I really appreciate you being here today. Thank you so much for your attention. Hope to see you next time. Until then, as always, remember, leaders read and readers lead.